0: Well, I have found that having that variety in my week makes me fresher when I go to see patients. I always feel like I've had different part of my brain charged up. So
1: you've been listening to Professor Lyndall Trevina, who's a professor of primary health care at the University of Sydney. And she's been talking about how she navigated her clinical research and GP practice. You're listening to Cheers with Peers from the Primary Care Collaborative Cancer Clinical Trials Group, PC4, who supports the development of high-quality cancer research in primary care. Welcome to Cheers with Peers. This is a podcast from PC4 that helps mid-career researchers ski down the icy and sometimes treacherous slopes of research. I'm Dr. Jennifer Walker, and I'm a mid-career researcher, principally working on cancer in primary care research and implementation science. In today's episode, you'll hear from Lyndall Trevena. She talks about how GPs navigate their academic leadership role from a GP perspective, what are the challenges of being clinically active and engaged in research, and how does she increase her international profile?
0: Do you want to start by telling me a little bit about your career trajectory? Sure. Thanks for having me on the podcast. I actually had a pretty unconventional journey to research. In fact, I hated research when I was a medical student. They made us do a project and I couldn't wait to get it done and dusted. So it is a big surprise to me now that I am sitting where I am today. (laughs) So you never know what's ahead of you. Really, I was busy being a mum, juggling being a GP, seeing patients for many, many years and thoroughly enjoyed that. And it wasn't really until uh, I was about probably 15 years after graduating from med school that I started to notice things in my clinical practice that got me thinking it must be a bigger question to answer here and I enjoyed the clinical work working with individual patients but I started to yearn for having a bit more of an impact at the bigger picture level so that's really what got me into research.
1: One of the questions we always like to ask clinical researchers is how do you actually marry your clinical practice with your academic research? And you've obviously, I mean, it's really nice to know that the research that you do has actually evolved out of the clinical work that you do. But over the time that you've become more and more involved in research, how have you found that sort of striking that balance between being a clinician and an academic?
0: Well, I think I've gradually become more of an academic and less of a clinician. And that's the harsh reality of things. It really does tear you into sometimes trying to be all things to all people and you just can't do it. You can't be available enough for your patients who want you there every day. And, of course, you know, the day they do get sick, you're off at the university doing your research and other things. So I think most academics find that a real struggle. Yes, so it's the logistics of it. And
1: do you look at patients differently or feel like your clinical practice is different when you've worked as an academic or do you feel that the two have married quite well?
0: Well I have found that having that variety in my week makes me fresher when I go to see patients. I always feel like I've had different part of my brain charged up and then I go and use the other side of the brain and uh, different, slightly different skills. So for me, they've always complemented each other. So Linda, where do
1: you think your passion for informed decision making came from?
0: The thing that had always fascinated me was the art and the science of medicine. So where those two meet and one of the questions I'd had as a clinician was around how we can find the best information to keep up to date and how we could help our patients understand that better and be more involved in decisions. So that's really what took me in down that path. And uh, I did my PhD on overcoming barriers to the application of evidence in general practice. That led me into shared decision-making as a way of applying evidence with patients. That's really how I got into that.
1: So internationally, you have quite a well-respected
0: research profile
1: in this area.
0: How did you find that developed? Oh, I think I was really lucky. I had fantastic supervisors for my PhD, So Les Erwig and Alex Barrett were very supportive and introduced me to people. I think also shared decision-making back then in the sort of turn of the 21st century was quite new and quite novel. We were coming out of the era of evidence-based medicine in the 1990s and people were struggling with how to apply that with patients so that I felt like I had a topic that was current and relevant and I think that also helped so there were just a small number of us working in that field in those days so I remember going to one of the very first shared decision making conferences in Oxford at St Catherine's College as a PhD student very anxious and nervous and sitting around the dinner table with all these people that I had read their papers and I, I, I revered and admired and they were really nice and we still keep in touch now and I now find it a little strange when I have students come up to me at those conferences and say, you know, that they want to chat with me about their work. So I've become one of those older people now, the seniors, and I don't know quite when that happened, Jen, yeah. but, but yeah. it just does. Um, I had the good fortune to write a, a couple of papers in my PhD that were – picked up by the international shared decision-making group and then people asked me to work with them and we all kind of became a sort of wide network. And in fact, we're just now forming a society, for an international society for shared decision-making with formal membership. Can I tell you a funny story? Yes, tell me a funny story. So this is also a weird example of when you become a senior that somebody is citing. My son is a, a medical doctor. Uh, here in Melbourne and was doing an online course the other day and he he said he was doing this course and that part of it module was on shared decision making. He came across the papers by Trevina et al that were being cited and he was really hoping that the moderator would notice he had the same surname. <laughs> that's fantastic. So that's the ultimate story I think when that is. when your own son actually has to read your his mother's papers. <laughs> And so I thought that was a good one. That is
1: very good and has to actually sort of read them, understand them and actually inter- include them in his work. I did so suggest that's he, very good. Yeah, he
0: could say that he'd contacted the author about this particular <laughs> <laughs> paper.
1: You do quite a lot of work in East Timor, is that right, with medical doctors?
0: Yep. I've again had uh, the fortune of being the Associate Dean International at the Sydney Medical School for uh, quite a few years, and that allowed me to form a lot of international partnerships. and understand and experience how tough it can be trying to apply evidence in very low resource settings. So that took me back to my beginnings with marginalised homeless people but in a slightly different way. In the early days of shared decision making work people scoffed at us and said that we were really only doing something that was for the worried well. But in fact now I think the science has moved on far enough for us really to be pushing beyond that to show actually even greater impact in people from lower literate backgrounds, how to adapt culture and cultural beliefs into decision making and how to adjust your decision making in environments where, with patients where there are limited resources and in a timely fashion. Because I think what strikes me most when I do go overseas is the patient load the doctors carry and the additional challenges they face that we don't where they have a huge number of patients and very little time so how do you do that in just a few minutes it's really really challenging
1: that's really good good work to do and they're definitely not the worried well at what point did you sort of realize that you were a mid-career researcher or in your case maybe when that pivot point was where you became more academic than clinician or
0: I wouldn't say there was a particular point, but it was put kind of around the end of my PhD time. I started to get my own grants. I think that was a sign for me that I could probably move beyond being a PhD student and got got a little bit more hopeful. Um, It was also around the time that I got a proper academic job that wasn't (laughs) soft money. So I think that's another thing that many of us... You know, as we're younger researchers or early, earlier career researchers, strive for some kind of job security, and that is obviously an important point. Yes, and that is something that definitely comes up
1: quite a lot. So that sort of takes us to the end of our chat. It's been really lovely actually. It's, it's One of my joys with doing the podcast is that I really get to sort of talk to people who I, I don't get to talk to for more than five minutes at a time. So it's been lovely to
0: explore a little bit more about your life. Is there anything else you feel you'd like to add to the conversation? I want to encourage anybody out there who's interested in research to give it a go and not to be frightened of exploring ideas in different ways. Don't be shy about approaching people that you admire or respect. People are really, genuinely, very, very lovely and helpful. And, you know, I think if you've got a little bit of a, a passion for research, just let that go and, you know, explore it and see where it takes you. Hmm, Fantastic. So, Lyndall, one question we ask everybody at the end of
1: our interview is, what podcasts have you been listening to recently? And I'd just like to add that I've been listening to podcasts lately, but I I got a bit uh, consumed by all those crime ones, which were so disturbing. I haven't listened to any since.
0: Well, I unfortunately i am not a podcast listener. (laughs) I love reading. I love reading books. So, and I don't really have a lot of time. Thank you so much for coming in. It's Cheers with
1: Piers. So cheers to you, Lyndall. Cheers, Jen. That was Professor Lyndall Trevina. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to Cheers with Peers, produced by PC4. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing info at pc4tg.com.au or keep in touch via Twitter where you'll find us at PC4TG. Don't forget to visit PC4's website, pc4tg.com.au.